Welcome to So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill. And I'm Lucy Siegel. And so last week we talked about words. Uh, it was an extraordinary episode, uh, both for its breadth and for the response that it, we got from our audience. I think especially the voice note that Gillian sent afterwards uh, really seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Yes, it was the first episode that we have ever um, included an epilogue from one of our interviewees. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, it was so extraordinary. Um, do listen if you if you didn't catch it. Um, Gillian Burke just spoke really honestly and profoundly about her response to Black Lives Matter. And I really like the idea of just going with it a little bit, which I mm. think is what we're going to do today on this episode. Yes. So today we're going to be looking at something, well, we're going to be changing direction quite ra radically, really. Some of the feedback has been very positive, but we've also had some feedback pointing out our blind spots. Many of our guests have been people you've heard from before. Many of our guests have been commentators or famous people from the UK or from North America. But there are many other stories out there, and some of them extremely urgent, extremely dangerous and and often silenced and so today we're going to be talking about stories from the front lines where indigenous people are engaged in a war of survival to protect our living planet welcome to true spies the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time suddenly out of the dark it's appeared bin laden you'll meet the people who live life undercover what do they know what are their skills and what would you do in their position vengeance felt good seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous true spies from spyscape studios wherever you get your podcasts Welcome back to this episode. This episode is called Messages from the Frontline. And we've always said, on So Hot Right Now, we've always said that we wanted to talk more to people who are on the front line of land and environmental defending. In this episode, we are going to talk to Lottie Cunningham, who is a Miskitu tribal lawyer uh, from Nicaragua. And when I was growing up in the 1980s, Nicaragua was always on the news and it was always prefaced with the phrase war-torn Nicaragua. And I'm really ashamed to say that that was the last time I remember thinking a lot about Nicaragua. And if I'm an environmental journalist who's not thinking about uh, Nicaragua very often, then I'm kind of worried about the population at large. So we got to speak to Lottie. She's in a very remote location. And um, she made time to talk to us. And I found it a very emotional it was, process. I thought it was an extraordinary conversation. It, um, it was very difficult to set up because she was so far away. There was a lag. Yeah, we were helped by a woman called Francisca who helped uh, to set up the conversation and to do any translation, though we didn't really need much in the end because Lottie was very fluent. Um, it was it was a conversation that I think shook us. I don't think we were quite ready for the urgency of it, for the um, for what it felt like to speak to somebody whose life and the life of their family and people is in such immediate danger. Um, that came across so powerfully that we have pulled this episode right up our schedule. It was supposed to be going out later. We've swapped it in the episode we had planned. We brought it up to this week. So uh, Natalie, our producer, has been flat out uh, editing it. Um, 
which I don't know, Natalie, how have you found that? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this just before uh, we started recording today, that the editing process on this one was really interesting because we were all very conscious, I think, that Lottie is not very often given a platform to speak her truth and and explain exactly what she's going through. And I, in editing this episode, really didn't want to take out too much of what she had to say, which means that it's a bit longer than we'd usually do. I mean, part of the joy of podcasts is that there are no rules, really. But the perceived wisdom is that sort of if you're hitting over an hour, that might feel a bit too long for some people. So I would urge you to to stick with this episode. And if you do need to listen to it in two batches, fine. We're just happy to (laughs) to put this out there and uh, just really didn't want to silence somebody like Lottie, who I think has probably already suffered quite a lot of being silenced in her lifetime. Very well said. And you can listen to it in three batches if you so desire. (laughs) But the important thing is you listen to it. Yeah, it's a story. And this uh, this is why we wanted to speak to Lottie. People in indigenous communities do not get a chance to speak directly. Often there's a middle person, a journalist, a reporter, a publication. You do not get to hear from people in these situations often. Yet hundreds of people in this situation are being killed every single year. It's full on. The land and water that people, indigenous people, defend with their lives is a common resource and we all depend upon it. We just don't think about it. We don't see this in the news very often. These deaths go unreported. These stories go unreported, but they affect us all. It's urgent. Um, we saw in the news this week, uh, Crystal Tubles, and, uh, who was a guest earlier on our show it with the Dakota Access Pipeline, a fantastic result this week with a judge in the United States Supreme Court ordering that the oil pipeline that she and the, her fellow organizers and all the people involved in that community action in Dakota, um, that that oil pipeline be stopped because its functioning was deemed to be illegal, uh, which is incredible vindication. But that it, was it's, in the it's news. Pretty much, yeah. It's pretty much yeah. the, the victory of the, of, the, of the century so far. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it, yeah. it's astounding. And actually yeah. just felt so much sweeter because I felt like, because we talked to Crystal... I felt like yes. we had some sort of currency in it. I, I was thinking, oh, she's an alumni of So Hot right now. Yeah, but, yeah exactly. You know, yeah. It, it is. But it, I mean, this, that's a sort of very flippant take on a very serious situation. But another thing about this, as you mentioned, Tom, this is th- these people are defending land and ecosystems on our behalf. And we are part of a community. And when you engage in that community by reaching out, listening, understanding stories from that community, you do feel part of something that's bigger than mm. you. And actually, there is a, um, a, a benefit and a, and a payoff. And if you are interested in environmental activism, and a lot of people talk about um, eco-anxiety and feeling the burden, you know what? That is the best, the best thing to do is to be part of that community and share the burden. Mm. I think so. And I, but, but one thing that is different from Crystal's situation and Lottie, who we're here from today, is that everybody who's interested in environmental issues had probably heard of the Dakota Access Pipeline and the No Dapple protests. I've seen drone footage, I've seen body cam footage from police officers, it's been on news reports on all the major stations and almost it, it, it was hard to avoid if you were interested in this. But I had, I'm interested in um, environmental issues and I had not 
really understood what was going on. And issues in the global south and issues uh, in countries that aren't in Europe and North America do not get the prominence of stories like Crystal's, even though those stories are also hard to hear about. So today we've asked Ben Lever uh, from Global Witness to join us to give us an overview, uh, to understand how Lottie's story fits in and to understand what we can all do about this, either as citizens or if you are somebody who is a professional communicator in your job. Yes, and thank you, Ben, because um, you were actually the person that, that got us access to Lottie Cunningham in the first place and put us in touch. So thank you very much for that. Could you explain a little bit about what you do and um, uh, about Global Witness, just in case uh, people don't know Global Witness? So Global Witness is an international organisation that investigates, exposes and campaigns to end corruption, human rights abuses uh, and environmental destruction associated with the natural resource sector. So this might mean um, exposing the fact that illegal timber from rainforest is ending up on EU markets. It might be campaigning against blood diamonds, but it can equally mean advocating to stop money laundering from those natural resource projects through the UK banking system or through the UK property market. Um, or in the case of the team that I work on, it means supporting environmentalists, land rights activists and indigenous leaders around the world who are basically being threatened and attacked for effectively doing the same kind of work that, that we do at Global Witness. That sounds quite full on, Ben. It can be, but it's also a privilege in so much as I'm very lucky that my job involves getting to know uh, people like Lottie, uh, defenders around the world who are literally on the front line of the struggle to end the climate crisis, um, to defend all of our rights, all of our uh, environment. And, you know, these are some of the bravest, most inspirational people on earth, I would argue. You, you've already pointed out their stories are often not heard. I'm lucky enough to hear their stories quite quite regularly. Unfortunately, I also have to hear about the threats they're facing, about the fear that they often live in. And so the challenge is really how can we galvanise international support to try and keep those people safe so that their voices can be heard and that their work can have an impact. Do you think that the stories are not told often enough? Are you conscious of that? And why do you think that is? I think there's, there's a number of challenges. I mean, I think one of the reasons we don't hear their stories is the same reason that they're facing such threats. These are people who are speaking truth to power, power, taking on huge interests, whether it's abusive governments or whether it's huge uh, companies that want to put in place destructive natural resource projects. So they're coming up against powerful actors who want to silence them and, and, and can wield a lot of influence, particularly in the media, in the countries those activists are operating in. But then there's the practical side to it as well. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced it yourselves in conducting the interview with Lottie. There are language barriers sometimes. I mean, Lottie speaks Spanish and English and her own indigenous language. Some uh, activists only speak their own indigenous language. Um, they will often be living in very remote places with very poor internet access, or they might be very scared to speak up and raise their profile if they're getting threatened by the army, which has a battalion down the road, for example. So I think there are a range of practical challenges and power dynamics, um, but I think it's it's a, it's a challenge that we all need to overcome, precisely because their struggle is so connected to the environmentalism in countries like the UK um, that that needs to be joined up if we're going to win this this battle. 
And and what? So I guess some people might uh, listen and think, well, I live in Hemel Hempstead. You know, what's this got to do with me? You know, why should I care about this? Well, I think even if you're in Hemel Hempstead, it's probably clear that the climate crisis is one of the crises of our times. It's something that, as we all know, we're well behind on on tackling and that needs to be prioritised urgently. And I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, how are we going to protect the planet if we don't protect those who defend it from destruction every day, and particularly the indigenous leaders who are on the front line of that battle? So that's why we should care, because these people are at the forefront of a struggle for, for climate justice and to protect the environment that ultimately is going to benefit all of us. But I think secondly as well, you know, land and environmental defenders are defending the rights of, of all of us, ultimately. If they can speak out and protest, then it's much more likely um, that all of our rights are going to be upheld. If they're threatened, if they're silenced, if they're at risk, then all of our rights are at risk. So I guess, and I guess also these are human rights issues. I, I think sometimes it's very easy to forget that these are people who are being taken away from their homes, who are being killed who are having their basic human rights interfered with in a way that I think if these stories w took place in cities, if they took place in um, countries like in North America or Europe, would we would people would be up in arms about them. But somehow it doesn't seem to cut through when people live in closer to the natural world for some reason. I, know, I don't know why that is. Um, yeah, that that could be that could be true, and and I think it's linked to the issue of raising those voices and getting those stories out there. I mean, that's one of the things that we try and do at Global Witness, where we've documented that in the last four years, at least four people have been murdered every week, just for every week, every week, just for protesting against irresponsible and env environmentally destructive uh, business projects, usually. So. These are people who are who are standing up, protesting. It might be, for example, uh, a mother who um, in her community sees that the river is contaminated by a local mining project, starts to complain about that, starts to protest about that, and ends up receiving death threats and her children receive death threats. But it could also be student activists who are clim uh, uh, protesting for climate justice in the Philippines, which is already suffering the impacts of, of climate change and where people are being murdered in, in high rates every week just for standing up for the environment. So this is an, an urgent issue. It's an issue that's getting worse, unfortunately, and activism for the environment and for land rights in general has got more dangerous in recent years because the killings is, is the tip of the iceberg. There are innumerable uh, activists also being locked up, uh, being threatened and facing other risks for, for, for their environmental defence. How um, dangerous is it, Ben, to tell the stories as well, to report on these on these issues? Because, you know, I'm not just thinking about, you know, in the field on the front line, but you've also got surveillance and censorship online increasingly it feels to me so how dangerous is that that's a really good point and, and it's one that's become even more acute in the current context of of covid right because as you know we're doing it right now uh our work has been taken onto online platforms and so that might not be the case with all of your indigenous leaders and community organizers but for, for a lot of land rights and environmental activists they too for obvious reasons, are having to do what they can 
digitally, online, remotely. Now, that unfortunately does represent a whole new front in terms of their risks because firstly, they're sitting ducks. Uh, you know, they're under lockdown like us. We know of stories in Colombia in particular where paramilitaries have targeted uh, environmental defenders because they know where they're in lockdown and they can literally go and take them out. Um, but then those who aren't facing those physical risks have that digital risk because everything they're doing is online and digital security becomes a huge issue. What I don't understand is why we don't talk about this more. We report on protests, you know, Extinction Rebellion, you know, environmental protests, people chaining themselves to trees. But th this seems such a big story um if there were people being murdered not for environmental reasons in in other places it feels like oh, I they'd cut through more i don't know I, I don't know why we don't talk about this as much i think it's a it's it's true and it's a good point and it's a particularly important point because so much can be done to tackle this issue i mean yeah obviously it's the ultimately it ultimately it's the responsibility of for example the nicaraguan government to ensure that Lotti is safe now in a lot of cases it's the government that's actually putting these people at risk the government is colluding often with big big business interests to use their security forces to silence land rights activists or, or environmentalists but the, the good news is, is that there's a, a range of other actors that could step up to the mark and could take action. So, for example, the businesses themselves, businesses selling on the European market should not be sourcing from communities where defenders and indigenous leaders are being threatened and attacked. That's mm -hmm. an obvious one. Now, there's a reluctance from business so far to step up to that mark and take action. Other governments, the UK government has a commitment, it has a policy that says it will support human rights defenders, including environmentalists around the wor world. It's committed to take action, but it's not implementing that consistently. So I think that the fact that these stories sometimes get buried is quite convenient for those uh, actors, whether it's governments or businesses, who are shirking their responsibility at present. I just wanted to say it's it's about joining the dots a lot of the time, isn't it? And um, it, it just reminds me, so, you know, one of the main ways that land is taken from Indigenous people is through cattle ranching, which we see again and again and again. And it's sort of market approved. And I remember doing a story in um, Brazil quite a few years ago about the fashion industry and the global the global leather trade was shown to be driving the destruction of the rainforest and the way in which corporate interests are able to suppress those stories is was quite astonishing to me at the time so I think there's a bit of this just back to Tom's question like why aren't they more covered there's also a sort of siloing that goes on in our own brains I think and maybe this goes back to a, pre a previous episode when we were talking to Christiana Figueres about you know cognitive shift and the need to think differently but I think that a lot of these um, abuses and killings take place defending land which are often in what we might call biodiversity hotspots like really important places for nature and I think that within media we tend to think of those places as an ecosystem story about wildlife mm -hmm. and then fluffy. other places yeah. fluffy 
and beautiful pictures like Nat Geo. Mm. And then we tend to think of the human story and the pipelines and the mining in a separate sort of place. So I think we are failing to join the dots on both mm -hmm. counts. I think that's totally it. Yeah. But that's what we're good at. Like as storytellers, that's what we're really good at is joining the dots. You mentioned COVID and I'm just wondering, like Global Witness, your mandate sounds, you know, expansive. Um, but I wonder if this, it, what's happened to you guys and your responses during COVID, like are you working in the margins of your mandate just trying to formulate an emergency response and does it put other work on hold? Yeah, we've certainly had to focus on the new threats uh, that have emerged through in the context of the pandemic. So um, people that we're working with around the world are facing new and different threats. So for example, um, a lot of environmentalists and land rights activists are criminalized. So they're being locked up basically to, to stop them from doing their activism. Now, the judicial system in a lot of countries is effectively frozen at the moment. They're not, it's not operating, which means that if you've locked a couple of land rights activists up just before the pandemic hits, it's relatively easy to keep them locked up because their trial is being postponed indefinitely. So that means that you've got a lot of um, environmentalists and land rights activists who are in jail uh, on longer for a longer term at the moment because of the pandemic. I've already mentioned that some people are being targeted um, for hits, for, for violent hits, because they're in lockdown, they're easy to identify. Then there's the digital risks that people are facing. Um, so there's a whole range of different threats that have come about because of the pandemic that we're having to respond to. And obviously, there are also a lot of new challenges to our work. We're rising to some of them through online work. It's nice to see how easy we can get connected with people if we don't travel. But there are some people that we need to travel to, to, to meet with, particularly in remote areas. And I think that's where one of the biggest challenges lies. Why did you put us in touch with Lottie? Why did, when we explained our sort of mission and what we wanted to do, why, why did... Why did you think Lottie was the story that we should focus on? Well, I thought it was important for you to speak to somebody who's Indigenous for a start, because I think that Indigenous peoples have always been on the front line of, of the struggle to protect our planet and its natural resources and, and, and a more sustainable way of living. You know, they really are the experts. They have this expertise that we can only dream of, and yet because of practical, linguistic and, and other obstacles often aren't heard. So I think that, you know, if we're serious about getting expert voices into the mix on discussions about environmentalism, we have to find a way to bring Indigenous voices into that discussion. So that was the obvious reason for bringing Lottie in, but also her, her story is emblematic of the stories of so many other land rights, environmental defenders and Indigenous leaders around the world, because she has faced threats. Her family has faced threats and obstacles. She has had to live in fear. She's faced uh, stigmas and, and, and prejudices because she hasn't shut up. She hasn't done what the government and big business and other powerful interests have wanted her to do and stay silenced. So Lottie's case is emblematic of what's going on to so many brave activists around the world, but she also brings that indigenous expertise that we need to pay much more attention to. So the first voice that you're going to hear is uh, Francisca's, Francisca Stuardo, who helped us with the interview, some of the translation, and then you will hear Lottie Cunningham. Okay. 
All right, I'm Francisca Estuardo. I'm currently based in Santiago. Uh, I'm a journalist and I've been working with uh, LOTI for a few years now, uh, raising the voices of indigenous people in the Northern Caribbean zone of uh, Nicaragua and the struggles they're facing uh, both um, structurally and currently because of the political crisis that it's taking place and has uh, undertaken the agenda from 2019. How did you meet Lottie? I met Lottie a few years ago uh, because I was working in a human rights uh, organization that focused the attention on human rights violations at international level and to hold uh, states accountable before international uh, scenarios, uh, especially in the inter-American human rights system, before the inter-American human rights system. And we met because one of uh, my former organizations, um, the Center for, uh, for Inter Center for Justice and International Law, CEGIL, um, was representing uh, LOTI by that time. They're still taking that representation. So we met and we worked together for a few years. So, so you're a journalist and you specialize in stories of indigenous rights, is that right? I'm more specialized in, um, in human rights in general, but yeah. we, uh, due to the lack of spaces for indigenous people, we, ha we undertook some of the cases, uh, especially in Nicaragua and probably in, in Guatemala by that time. I have worked in transitional justice cases, um, sexual uh, um, harassment and the situation of human rights defenders and also sexual abuses against women and those and indigenous some of the indigenous uh, struggles those those have been my my main lines of work mm. is it difficult work uh, now it's a, another another type of work because we're uh, I'm mostly um, supporting local organizations on how to raise their voices and how to campaign for uh, how to take their denounces to a broader agenda both international and international level and also setting up um, advocacy strategies in order to take their demands on different scenarios but the environment it's also it's always difficult especially uh, due to the inequality that still uh, underlies in Latin America and that has uh, worsened after the uh, COVID-19 crisis and also because of the regressive regimes that we're experimenting across the region. So especially in Latin America, we're facing those um, struggles. Ah, oh, that's Lottie. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Sorry for this. That's okay. Um, thank you, thank you very much, and sorry for this because the problem is that my uh, secure digital security um, give me a lot of, of um, conflict with my technology communication. <laughs> Lottie, could you um, could you tell us what you do on a day to day basis? For people who don't know, can you can you tell us about your life and your work? 
Um, well, first, um, I want to thank the opportunity to share um, what we do. Um, basically, what we do is that we promote and protect um, indigenous people, territory, and natural resource. Um, we have more than um, 20 years that we have been struggling um, um, giving the indigenous community. We work with more than 97 indigenous community and um, most of them are indigenous people, um, Miskito, that I am also a Miskito indigenous woman. We work defending human rights, collective human rights, what is the self-determination for communities. Um, indigenous people, communities, and their territory. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I've heard a lot about your work. It's it's really impressive for people listening at home. Lottie's uh, Cunningham's uh, the founder. She's a lawyer, the founder of the Center for Justice and Human Rights. Uh, she's an expert in the, as she said, the indigenous struggle in Nicaragua, um, which has been a, a very difficult struggle with many people sadly killed. And uh, I, I've, I, my understanding is that your work is 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 quite dangerous sometimes and very difficult um we were going to ask you if you could tell us how you began why you first started trying to protect and communicate for this community well as a indigenous woman um, for me was um, very important to struggle for my people because we suffer in 1981, we suffer a civil war. Previously in that occasion, I was a nurse and I experienced how my people was lack of information, um, a lot of human rights violation in this civil war not only of self-determination and territory, but um, violation to their life and their integrity. And also um, all type of violation, lack of um, <clears throat> information and um, lack of access to justice. Um, then I decided to leave nursing and I uh, made up my mind to study, uh, go to law school. And there is where I promise that I will come back to my community. In those times in my city, there were no university, so I had to go to the capital to study and it was difficult for me because I was a single mother with a child of two years old and uh, then I decided to come back and when I finished after six years seven years struggling to get my title and I came back that was the specifically year I find out that um, the government did gave a concession to um, did gave a concession to a company 
um, this was a um, login company um, from Korea, Empresa Solcarza. It gave 62,000 hectares to exploit illegally the, um, the lumbers without the consent of the indigenous people. The indigenous people find out this was an indigenous people named Mayagnas. I am from the indigenous people from Miskitu, and the Mayagnas indigenous people were the one faces this. So there is where we join with other non-profit organizations nationally and internationally to struggle for the rights for the indigenous people. After eight years of struggle, we, um, we went to the Inter-American Court, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, and there were a decision in favor of the community. And uh, the court um, said that Nicaragua government did violate the indigenous people's rights and he ordered the, the Nicaraguan government to create a mechanism to demarcate and take indigenous people land. That court decision was made in 2001. And from 2001, well, I, the indigenous community asked me to represent them in the process to implement the court decision. And there I am. I, I had started with the Mayagna communities. And after a couple of years, the Mesquite indigenous people asked me to represent them. So we has been working. I, I create uh, this center for justice that most of us are indigenous professionals, attorneys, sociologists, anthropologists, and, and, and different other disciplines that we could help our people with their petition. So we also use the national mechanism and the international mechanism. Well, now we are still struggling. I could say we, re we do recognize that Nicaragua government um, demarcate and take 23 territory. We have been struggling all these years, pushing to make sure these 23 territories confirmed by 304 communities. Um, 304 communities, indigenous and Afro-descendants um, communities. But um, we, our concern is that even if Nicaragua government has demarcated and title, he has not concluded the last step that we call sanitation, saneamiento. That saneamiento means clear, um, to clear up the situation of third party 
using and occupying um, indigenous people and Afro-descendants territory. And there are, this is the, this is the critical um, space because when we started the process of demarcation, um, for example, with the Awastingni case that we took in the Inter-American Court, we just had, uh, um, Awastingni just had like 40 family, third party people using their, their. Now they have 91%, only that community wow. have 91% have a massive, massive invasion of settlers, land grabbing, what we got. So there has come these land grabbing, these settlers, most of them are ex-military. So from 2015, we started to suffer. Our community started to suffer an increase of um, violence. We has have more than 44 people has died defending their territory. We has more than 50 people um, with injured, and some of them lose their eye, lose their foot. Um, it has been very, very um, extremely bad. And um, we had people disappear. We have more than four indigenous leaders who has been disappeared from 2015 and we cannot find them nor nor body nor no, no investigation a lot of impunity no access to justice this is what we have been suffering but also we as human rights has been threatened so we had suffered death threat um, myself and my colleague was take to jail we had suffered different type of harassment, intimidation, and these are the things we have been facing. Wow. I'm so sorry to, to hear your struggle and the, um, when you talk about the death toll and the people have disappeared and your own harassment that you've suffered and going to jail. I find it so moving, Lottie. I really do. Mm. And I'm so sorry. I, I want to know... <laughs> We all want to know what we can do. And I want to know about your story over all these years. And maybe actually, Francisca, you can help here because you're in Santiago, you're in Chile. How has Lottie's struggle and the struggle of the indigenous people that she's working with and for, how has that story been told? And has it had attention? Has it, has it caused outrage and has it been told in a way that will that provokes change? Of course. Well, we we this struggle is like how I said has been with a lot of um, partners, including Sehil. Sehil has been one of our main partners. This is a center for justice and international law who we work with for more than 20 years that I know 
no say hill and we has been working from hand to hand and they the um Sehil has um, um as a partner had worked with us um in for example in the in the legal strategy we decide to go to the inter-american commission and we also um, in the UN bodies, we also try to make some kind of report to highlight that. But also, um, Sehil has support us to advocate, make advocate and 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 lobby the different um, the different areas. So we has make some kind of um, international forum. We had with other indigenous people from Ecuador, from Peru, from Colombia, and from Central America, like Guatemala and Mexico, um, and other, other, other from Honduras. So we do this um, um, building some kind of partnerships. Then we has other partner like Occidental Art and Ecology Center who we works with 317 women with agroecology, also support, supported by World Centric and um, in the USA. And we has been, has different type of partner for, like how I say, for advocacy and for um, international uh, um, litigation um, and also um, for for local to make some kind of extra ethic that the indigenous people could resist mm -hmm. on their land while we continue our litigation. So that is important for us to have partnership like you all to take mm -hmm. out our story because we want people to know that what is happening in Nicaragua. Also, I would like to say about an important um, um, investigation made by Oakland Institute. Oakland Institute just made, a, um, we, we had a webinar where they gave their, um, their result of the, of the causes of this massive invasion and how Nicaragua government is supporting. And uh, it is in English, so you all could have uh, this investigation was, we, we, it was published last month its name, it's in Oakland Institute. So those are the partners we build because we believe and they are people come down to the communities and, uh, and brainstorm with us how we could um, do to overcome this struggle with the indigenous people because we do it with them what is their expectations and how well what they want and what 
our people want is that they want the government to take out the third party people occupying and using. And this third party people is this massive settlers and land grabbing and companies who has come in illegally. And this last report made by Oakland Institute, this is a independent report, I um, show us and and um, that once more it shows the the reason why Nicaragua government doesn't want to finish the last step of the process of demarcation and titling for indigenous people because it's involved also in. Um, giving concession of natural resources, exploiting and our natural resources. So it's very interested to see that 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 last um, that last independent report made by Oakland Institute. We will we will read that report, Lottie. We will read that. So if I understand right, so that you the international court um, confirmed that the indigenous people should have their land demarcated and it made clear where the boundaries of different people's land was and that was agreed and the government of Nicaragua agreed to that but the phase that you're currently in which is removing people who've illegally come onto that land which which the government agreed was indigenous the government hasn't been doing that in fact it seems like the government's actually been supporting that land invasion which is violent and ongoing and linked to the resource extraction. How, how important is it that this story is told? And what is, what is difficult in trying to get this story out in Nicaragua and generally in the world? For us, it's very important because my people are, um, their culture is that. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a process of ethnocide. And that is what we have concern about because their land is taken away. So we, we as indigenous people um, live um, with Mother Earth, Mother Nature in a harmony. And the settler, settler has come this has come and destroy our land, has destroyed the rivers, has destroyed um, the environment and destroyed all the animals, all the reserve, all the area of reserve has been devastated, devastated. It's just like if a tornado or a hurricane has passed. So that is why our indigenous people are crying because these are the things what causes 
other situation in the environment for example when you have a pandemic like covid 19 um, this helps to spread it wild world because the mother nature has been destroyed so um, my people are dying for hunger and it's a humanitarian crisis and that's why we want people to know it's not something there out that um, um, is is that people must understand that um, the massive uh, invasion and land grabbing land grabbing cause um, a humanitarian crisis because they are destroying the mother earth but also um, they are taking away the um, the food of my people they don't have where to grow their food they take away their land where they used to produce their food and they has been displayed to the to areas where they cannot produce food the better places the better lands what has been taken away from the settlers is where they used to grow their food so this is why as 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 an indigenous woman i still struggle for my people because we are talking about a um, humanitarian crisis and much of these indigenous communities and the the children them don't have access to food and uh, the 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 impact the most impact in these poverty and extreme poverty is an indigenous woman and um the women's the elders and also the children them suffer a lot when this type of displacement it's 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 more on their life and um, they they don't they can't produce the basic food like rice beans plantain cassava that is what we eat as as our daily food but they cannot produce it because they has been displayed from their land from their area where they make their their food and um it has been very very we have we has um community we has nearly whole communities one whole or two whole communities what has been displayed total from they they are refugees in other communities and they are poor and other poor cannot support a refugee situation so this is what happening because in our culture we we have a lot of collectively solidarity between us so even if we are poor whatever we have we share with our brothers and sisters and this is what causing a lot of extremely poverty to all the indigenous communities because the the small population of of the indigenous people communities they go 
to the big populations to be to feel protected because they are being harassed and intimidated by these ex-military and they they just have to run some of them their house have been burned down their church has been burned down this is what the settlers do mm -hmm. and then when they come in and attack the whole community well they create every day some kind of um, attack or some kind of violence that the indigenous people get afraid and they cannot um, be out there in the in their territory why why isn't why aren't people all over the world talking about this every day how much international coverage have you had how many journalists have come to you and seen with their own eyes what's happening well um we has um we hasn't we has some support from journalists but not how we expect we need more story to be out there but um it's because the situation has been so devastated so it has been very insecure also for journalists to come to Nicaragua because a lot of journalists has been, um, because since 2018, Nicaragua country has get, um, the democracy has get more broken than, uh, there is no democracy. Maybe that's how I should say it. And this is something that maybe um, you all should understand that this situation of the indigenous people has been come for many, many years. And um, like how I said, and it increased in 2015. But, um, but we has experienced that Nicaragua in this 2018 uh, um, is in the deepest human rights crisis. And in these last 10 years, the state has been restricting citizen expression, closing down public spaces, and accelerating a process of institutional deterioration. So that is difficult for us, even if we have partnership with the media, to bring the media because we are suffering from 2018 Nicaragua government um, had a, 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 there was, a, a, like how I say, one of the deepest human rights crises where, where were more than 700 peop, um, young people did being shooted by the police and the army and um, in Nicaragua. And we are still seeking for justice for that. And many people had been injured, been disappeared. So that, that situation came over and, and for indigenous people that we live so far out of the capital, 
then the story, the, the more was central in the capital and not in indigenous people territory. Mm -hmm. We were just trying to highlight our story when, when the situation of Nicaragua, um, the crisis of human rights of Nicaragua in 2019 got very bad. So um, that is what I wanted to um, share with you. Um, can I ask um, Francisco, as a journalist, how have you found it to try and report this? Has it been difficult to try and get international coverage of this? We, we started working with uh, Lotti in 2016 uh, while I was working uh, with Sehil, uh, the organization that represents Lotti and, and the indigenous and the Miskitos people in the, before the international uh, inter-American human rights system. So uh, at first it was, we, we, f we faced what we, call, what we call like a general crisis because in, in Central America, there are so many situations taking place uh, that, that does, it turns very difficult to cover uh, the situation, the specific situation of indigenous people in Nicaragua. Um, also specifically, specifically in Nicaragua, there's a lack of access uh, for foreign journalists. Actually, we, we accessed one and we had the chance to visit the communities. But then after when we tried to enter the country again, uh, we couldn't, we were denied and we had to go back to Costa Rica. That was in 2018. Um, the, by the time I, I could enter, uh, it was uh, indeed very hard to uh, pass my, the migration process uh, because they do have uh, very strong uh, constraints uh, for journalists to get in the country, to cover the, the situation, even if it's not the crisis. Uh, the time we, we entered was actually before the crisis and even then we had we had some struggles to get in so uh, I think that's uh, detrimental to in order to uh, get a broader coverage of, of the situation also I, I believe there there are some um, issues about distance because as, as we said uh, it's very difficult to access to a community it, it, it represents maybe three days of, uh, of uh, travel to get uh, into, actually to visit one of, some of them. And also uh, I believe that there are some uh, language barriers because many of them does not speak uh, Spanish even. So it's uh, harder to cover and to engage in a conversation with them. Um, so uh, I believe that there are basic barriers to cover it and also the political situation doesn't help. And so as, as a result, we, we could uh, get some coverage from mostly, uh, mostly from alternative media and some international outlets, but it comes, uh, but it, it needed some support so we could get coverage when we were uh, having, maybe when we were uh, about to have some he uh, hearings before the, uh, inter-American human rights system, or maybe if there was a huge attack against the communities, but they most of them lack of context. So you will get the result, but not the context and what underlies and and the situation of mosquito people. Mm -hmm. um, so we try to uh, set up campaigns in order to raise the voices of the communities, but even then, it's uh, it's not that easy to for people 
to ex to explain uh, to people uh, what the lands represent for the mosquito communities and also how are they struggling because people don't really want to see that. So uh, most of, 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 of cases, there are people that are interested, they already know. Some of them they don't know because of uh, maybe the lack of coverage, but most of people don't really want to know about this. They don't want to really, they don't really want to know about the struggles of other people. So uh, it's very hard to build up a narrative in which you can connect to people uh, in a hopeful way, like uh, to raise awareness, but seeking for a solution instead of just sticking up to the, um, to the problem. How does that make you feel, Lottie, when you hear Francisca explain that most people don't want to know or they need a different context? How does that make you feel? Well, it has been difficult for us, and and it's it's um, but that's why we continue struggling because we know that there is in the situation of especially Nicaragua now with the pandemic, all the situation in the world. If we um don't take out our story well um like how i tell my community leaders people think that we are okay and that is not true we still have people dying we still have people being kidnapped we still have many many families have been displaced and now with this situation of the covid is much more worse because the community don't have access to no information the government don't give no information about um, what is the COVID, what action they are going to take with the COVID. We as non-profit organization, we have joined together with other non-profit organization to, to make sure that there are some information out there in indigenous language and the radio station to, to, to protect our people and telling the people to get their self determination making self quarantine making um, making some um, precautionary measure to make sure that strangers don't get in their their community to contaminate them so we are making these awareness to them in um, the, 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 the authorities doesn't want we are telling them what that they need to use a lot of um, traditional medicine because there is no medicine and we tell them well you have to focus on the symptoms and the symptoms is if is cough and cold you have to focus on that symptoms for the traditional medicine and make sure well that you are we cannot tell people to isolate themselves in their house because they don't have condition but we could tell them isolate from their neighbors we could tell them that they must um, don't make a um, gathering gathering thing um, type of, of activities like baseball like footballs with the young people 
and those are the things and even churches we have trying to tell them well you must read your bible each family make their church in their home and that would be a happy happy community making your church each each church should be in your own home so we are trying to let people understand that this is a serious thing and this is human human being people are is the one contaminate the other human being mm -hmm. is like how i said um but we we know that it's difficult nicaragua and I, I i would like to repeat this again that nicaragua um has uh, the deep human rights crisis and like how i said in these last 10 years the state has been um, restricting citizen expression, closing public spaces um, for us like non-profit organization and accelerating a process of institutional deterioration. They has even um, closed down nine NGOs of human rights in Nicaragua. Wow. We are being threatened to be closed down our office. Mm -hmm. We just make a we just make a, a, pet, um, a, um, a petition to the Inter-American Court about this harassment, intimidation, what we are suffering to close down our NGOs because we attend more than 97 indigenous communities. And we also work sometimes with the 23 territory when it comes to articulate to for some kind of, to advocate for some public policy so we are concerned that if they close down this institution who is going to take out the voices of yeah. the indigenous people and um, so uh, we cannot just um, stay there um, we, we, we have to continue um, taking out our voice we know other people um, at the world and the country is passing also a crisis, so we cannot be behind. We need to be out there taking our voices, let you all know, and partners like you all help us to take out our story because this is devastated. You know, we, 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 it's people, life. We are trying to protect people, life, people, integrity, the territory, the natural research and Mother Earth. I think um, in places like the United Kingdom or North America, I don't think that many of us often think what it would be like to live in a country where there is no communication. Your government doesn't say any. We complain a lot about the messaging from our government, but you're talking about a government that is silent towards its people and it has totally silenced some of its people. And when that happens, having your story told internationally is one of, I guess, the only hopes for resolution if you're facing a belligerent government. But at the same time, in the rest of the world, a big criticism is that indigenous peoples have a, almost no platform to tell their stories. There isn't an expectation that broadcasters will be telling the stories of indigenous people in other countries. And this is a really big problem and it's something that people are talking about. Um, what is the most useful thing that people listening to this can do to help you? 
Well, one of the things we, we need is definitely we need support and we need support in different kind of way. We need support. Firstly, we need support that people tell our story. We need that to be broadcast. We need that to be, we need support that the media highlight indigenous people problem because like how I said we have been suffering our people are suffering they are dying for hunger for pandemic for displacement they 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 it, I always tell people um I am I live in a in, in a community where my people burn by casualty and die for necessity and that is what people don't understand. It's hard for us to say these things, hmm. but is the truth. I'm so sorry. The other things we need is, well, we need people to support us financially also, because hmm. it's very difficult for us, especially with the pandemic, not to support the people in the community with some kind of um we we support we we want to support them with some kind of basically food and 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 soap and chloro things like for we call it hygienic um kit mm -hmm. where we could give them some masks show them how to make mass but it's it's difficult and like how um francisca said the problem is that it's very expensive to go to this community is three days by road rugged road and by boats small boat and um so we just to take even um, a pound of salt because those are the basically thing they, they need, like salt, vinegar, that they could identify with the vinegar if they have the COVID or not. Um, if, if they, when they lose their smell and, and the salt is so, help them with warm water to make gangle and um, to to wash their throats and um that would also help with the traditional medicine mm -hmm. but they has been saying that since the settlers and the land grabbing has destroyed the the land now they cannot find all the traditional medicine so they are even limited in in getting their traditional medicine that we used to has from mm -hmm. our grandmother and grandparents time so so mm -hmm. those are the things what we would like people to support us to tell our story out there media to help us and also people who really want to give us some kind of fun that we could continue our agroecology system and that the women's then we work with more than 300 
and 20 indigenous women in agroecology system because that is a way that they could resist whilst they grow their food and whilst the international litigation continues mm -hmm. because that takes many years. So then we need people to resist because we cannot tell people resist when they are hungry. We mm -hmm. need them to grow some kind of the, some kind of food. And the agroecology is something new for them because um, they uh, they never used to grow food in uh, some bad soil like now what they are doing. They never used to grow food and uh, making fence because that was not part of their culture. So this agroecology is something new for them mm -hmm. in the sense that they have to grow the food in a it, it it's it's not a bad it's not a good land it's the worst land because they have been displayed from their land their good lands where are good lands there has been displayed and now they are living in some kind of area what the land has too much acid too much sun and it's it's not it's not a good land for vegetable and other foods. Lottie, how, how widespread is COVID amongst these communities? Well, that is a difficult situation for us because the community could not explain good um, if the person who are dying or sick has COVID. But we are monitoring in 20 community now. And then, for example, last week, one of the community, five people died. So then we say, oh, five people in one week is too much for a small community. So then we, we, we said, but what? So we are, we has made some question and we has been telling them and this is difficult because access to to cell phone is very limited but we are trying to do that they come they goes to some part where have signal and then they call us and then we call them back to make sure that we could talk with them they don't have electricity so it's very limited we cannot talk they have a solar, one solar maybe in the whole community where they charge their phone. So it's it's something that, you know, we can attack like how we are attacking so long now because um, they don't have enough battery to, they don't have charger to, to charge um, electricity, to charge their cell phone. They don't have internet. So it's difficult, but also we are trying to monitor it to understand. But in this city where I live, it's devastated. This is a small city with maybe 100,000 people, but it's it, um, the most of us know one another. The, 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 
authorities of the government, the health authority, they don't want to give information. I had lost two of my family members, two, two cousins of mine. One was a medical doctor. And um, I remember, um, well, in the process, what I experienced is that there is no, um, no medication. There are no medication. Four of my colleagues got it. No medication. So what we had to do is with our, we, with our partnership in the capital, we sent the prescription to our partners and they bought the medication and sent to us. No oxygen, four ventilator for more than 300,000 people because the city where I live, this is the regional hospital. So everyone come from the other municipality looking looking for a ventilator, but there are only four ventilators in the whole region. And uh, antibiotics, there is no antibiotics. And most of the people who buy, we buy for family, our friends, we have a lot of solidarity between us, is so expensive. And for people what, who don't have money or don't have a job, it's much more difficult. So we is that's why we are asking for fun because we want we want to train the midwife them. We are getting some kits, but we still don't have enough money because we're getting some kits for the midwife and the health leaders, traditional leaders, that we could train them that they could have at least the basic thing. After the three days of fever, um, we need them to start the people with traditional medicine. And then when they have the fever, we'll start them with the antibiotic with the with the acetaminophen and the antibiotic so that is what we are trying to do um, and we are asking other people to help us and we are getting the kit ready at least for 20 community because we cannot we we are taking in consideration the community them who has been most of them has been displayed from their territory because those are the ones what has a lot, a lot of most, most extremely poverty. Mm -hmm. um, the other concern we have about this is the water problem. We are, um, because the most of the river are contaminated because Nicaragua government has promoted these companies and different companies has been coming here and the uh, most of these companies are mining company and these mining company has destroyed the important river where indigenous community drink water 
and do all their activity with this water. So now we are concerned about that. And also we are facing a storm with, um, with um, the Sahara thing came the, from. The dust. The dust? Was it the dust from the Sahara? Yeah. Yeah. Dust from Sahara. So that is the next thing we are facing right now. So we have the concern that we have in a lot of storm weather mixed with the Sahara dust. So we are telling the community people, be careful, you have to buy your water because we don't know the water is supposed to be contaminated because the most people the way how we get our water including me is that we we get we catch the water from from our roof and also um from well who has well and some well got it from rivers and creeks there is no agua potable in this whole region. We are more than 200 community, indigenous community. We, we cannot resolve all the problem, but when we are trying to, we, we, we are trying to help, help these 12 community what we, took the case again to mm. the inter-American system and the inter-American system give a precautionary measure the inter-American commission gave to 12 community and uh, even with the precautionary measure it can the, the, the violence continue so then we took it to the Inter-American Court joint with Sahil, you know, both of us. And um, now we have eight provisional measures from the Inter-American Court. The Inter-American Court has tell Nicaragua that he has to do the last step. But Nicaragua has not complied. He has to protect indigenous people's life, in indigenous people's integrity. He has to protect their territory. And one of the important things that this um, precautionary measure, um, I mean the provisional measure given by the court said, he has to protect also the identity culture. But so you have this extremely intimidating situation with um, COVID on top of a government that is belligerent, on top of people coming into the community and fighting and killing people and taking their land. Um, and thank you for explaining what people can do to help. My understanding is essentially tell this story and support your work. Have you got um, like a, a Twitter handle or instagram or something on social media we don't we we don't have um um twitter we have facebook mm -hmm. facebook is um sehud kang human rights 
we, oh, yeah. we still have problem with technology communication. We're very limited. We need you all support with that. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, look, if, if somebody's listening and wants to do, uh, wants to build a Twitter page for Lottie, if somebody's building and wants to take their story and to help these guys, uh, I thank you. You just sent the, uh, the Facebook page. Um, I'm sure if you're feeling, if you're listening to this at home and you're feeling like pretty powerless, there is something you can do. You can help tell the story. So if you want to help, get in touch with us. Yeah, we can put all the links on all our um, social media as well so we can help direct you there. It's raining and, and, and storming, so I cannot hear so much. <laughs> I can Would see. Would you all raise your all voice, please? I think I can see the wind blowing in your curtains, actually. I... <laughs> yeah. It's getting stormy. Lottie, is there anything else that you wanted to, to tell us while we have you here? Well, yes, I really would want um, to let people know that we want them to share our story because many people don't know that Nicaragua is in a deep human rights crisis. And being that Nicaragua in this, in this situation, this process have a huge impact in indigenous and Afro-descendants people in the Caribbean coast who lives in 304 village and in 23 territory. And that we need people to know that um, the causes of this massive invasion of armed settlers, because that is what they are, is because of the different company. The company who come in and take out our natural resource, like we faces a lot of company, for example, um, um, lot of them who has been taking away thousands and thousands of hectares from indigenous farmland and from the village is to um, do mining. And these mining are artisanal mining and um, illegal cutting lumbers, cattle, and, uh, and uh, other, other type of um, mining. We face a lot of mining even from Europe and that is important and you could see that in the independent report of Oakland Institute. Right. Thank you. We have the um, link to the report from Francisca. She sent us the link. Thank yeah. you very much for that. And thank you for all the other suggestions. So we will make sure that we um, uh, get all this information out to our listeners in a way that's easy for them to act on it. Um, um, Francisca, have you got one last thing? Is there anything you'd like to say for people listening? What would help you do your job in getting this story out? Yeah, I would like to... Uh, I think I think it's important that... Uh, we undertake the responsibility that we have, even if we're not there. 
maybe if we cannot travel, then we can track down the money and to see how the companies are related to this because there's a, there's a local level, but it's also an, there's also an international level and it comes uh, both with uh, the state and not, not non-state actors as uh, companies and transnationals. So it, it's happening all over the place and it's happening in, in Latin America, especially uh, because of the, of the lack of, uh, of, of support from civic society sometimes. And also because uh, we, we're not, we cannot, uh, we haven't come together in order to figure out what to do as a collective. So I think uh, maybe if we think uh, on ourselves as uh, an individual, there's not that much we can do, but if we organize uh, to tackle these obstacles, then we can, uh, we can undertake much more. And also, as you said, uh, we have carried out many campaigns uh, in order to raise the voices from uh, people in Nicaragua. And there's lots of things that people can do by, for example, going to the embassies, following up the conversations, both in the Inter-American Human Rights System and the UN um, International System as well. The UN Human Rights Council is uh, it's gathering these weeks. So this is a huge opportunity to claim for justice and to also support the voices from people that uh, are struggling and that most of times are, are very, are worried on, on taking care of their communities. So maybe, uh, as, as Lottie said, yeah, they, they cannot do much on the communication side, but we can because we, we don't, we're not struggling as they do. So I think uh, that would be my message to undertake the responsibility that we have as we're not struggling for our lives. Thank you. That was really, really um, uh, amazing points that you made. And just to reinforce mm. that our, our podcast and the purpose of our podcast is to talk to people who message on all sorts of different parts of this jigsaw. So you mentioned, you know, there could be people who have shares or their pensions are bankrolling these crimes against Lottie's community and the communities that she works with. So, you know, to anyone listening who's a financial journalist or a consumer journalist, this story is yours as well. You know, this is about joining the dots and taking taking a stand wherever we can. So just mm. because you don't write about indigenous issues in a specific territory, you can still have a lens on this. Yeah. And citizens too. I mean, it's very easy to think that um, forests in parts of the world very far away don't concern you and what happens there doesn't concern you. But we are learning more and more of how much we all rely on these ecosystems because the earth functions. It's, it's our life support systems are shared and indigenous people are the guardians of our shared life support systems. If you want your future to be safe, this is a very important issue for you, even though it can feel far away. And you might live on the same street as somebody who's making a decision about this. Or you might be able to look up on the internet and find out information that's helpful and share it with people as a citizen and support these people. Or as a private person, if you have like funds, you can support these people and what they do. So, yeah, it can feel far away, but it isn't because it's, we're all interlinked. Okay, gracias. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Francisca. Thank you very much for the patience and opportunity, and I hope my English was okay. It was great, Lottie. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, what a story, and thank you so much. And, yeah, it, respect. It's, it's amazing to hear what you're doing. Um, we have such admiration for you. Thank you. Thank you, Lottie. It's such a privilege to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for all your time.
Thank you very much. Bye bye. So that was a, a astonishing and very powerful conversation. Um, and I think probably like us, you might be thinking, what can I do? It feels very urgent. It feels like it's changing day by day, which is why we've pulled this episode earlier. Um, so Ben, what can people listening do? I think there's there's two main things that they can do. One is is probably the more interesting and obvious one, and that is to, to find the means, find the time to learn more about indigenous struggles, learn more about these frontline activists. And, and indeed, if you have the platform to give them a voice, do it. And, and that often will require a bit more time and a bit more effort, but it will be usually worth it. Um, the second thing is a bit more dull and a bit more political, but could have a big impact. And that would be to write to your MPs or your legislators and, and effectively ask them to ensure that protecting and supporting land rights, environmental activists, indigenous leaders is part of a, a better recovery after COVID. One in which we listen to those who are experts on environmental issues. We don't ignore the fact that they're being threatened and killed. So write to the government, ask them to ensure that they're protecting and supporting land rights and indigenous activists and that they're regulating businesses and how they behave abroad. That's not happening at the moment. But if, for example, the UK were to properly regulate and hold accountable British businesses around the world, that would be a step towards uh, a safer place for environmental activism in places like Nicaragua. I was looking at some of the um, recent sort of dialogues, uh, like the UN Human Rights Council, and I think the Nicaraguan government had submitted some oral evidence where um, there was pushback immediately about intervention from outside nations. It was like, you know, we got this covered, which, you know, is a standard response from these kind of regimes. But it is one that people might find that media outlets insist on, you know, where's the balance? What's your response when regimes want balance or story? Do stories require some balance in that way? Well... I think we need to recognise that the starting point for trying to tell these stories is one of great imbalance already. There's no doubt who usually has the platform, who usually has the power and who usually has the voice. And that is government, big business, powerful people. It's not frontline indigenous activists. So I think it's a little bit perverse sometimes for a government that is allowing its activists to be threatened and attacked and killed with impunity to then demand that they elbow their way into a platform one of the few platforms in which some of those activists are going to have their voices heard so it's not like governments and big business don't get a platform they've got plenty of platforms so yeah it's 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 important to make sure that we have all the information and tell a rounded story but at the moment, that's not happening, but the, the balance is lying elsewhere. And, and do you have any sort of recommendations about protocols? Because obviously you're dealing with people who are under threat, they're at risk. Um, I mean, obviously you don't reveal your sources and you don't reveal their locations and stuff like that. And, you know, I think a thing that Tom and I worry about, particularly when we spoke to Crystal, one of the lessons that I learned was, you know, not putting all the emphasis on a single person. Great point. 
Yeah, that's vital. And and you know, to be absolutely frank, we we have been guilty of that sometimes at Global Witness. Um, it's difficult because on the one hand, you really want to garner that international attention and harness it so that you can make positive change. And we know that often individual stories do resonate. On the other hand, we know that these are usually community struggles. It's not just Lottie, it's her whole indigenous community. It's not just Crystal, it's her whole indigenous community. And we have to do justice to that. We have to do justice to that for security reasons as well. If, if, if the idea is that raising somebody's profile can help them be safer sometimes, obviously we need to raise the profile of the whole community and not just its leaders. So I think that that's a challenge and it's one that we, we must try uh, and step up, step up to the mark on uh, because these are community struggles and community security needs. I think ultimately, though, it, there's always going to be a tension there, isn't there? Because as we talked at the beginning, it, it helps so much if you're far away from somebody to understand their struggle, to hear from them and to know about their life and to have a name and a person and a story to connect to. Um, yet by making a name, a person, a story, a narrative, you are giving attention to that person, their narrative mm -hmm. with everything that comes with that. True. Um, yeah. But I feel very lucky to have heard from Lottie. I hope, I guess like one of the main things people can do listening is just pass it on. Exactly. Right? Just... Exactly. Because I would say like we have this, you know, we had this time with her. I think this about all um, organisers and activists. And I often, because I write a lot about garment workers, they don't have any time. So they can't just go and do loads of interviews all day because they just don't have time. Because they're literally like trying to save lives and land. So, yeah, that's that's my plea as well. Could you help us to make this interview really, really travel and, and do some work? Yeah. And if you're a journalist or a reporter report on it <laughs> you uh, you can find ben i'm sure he'd be very interested to hear from you um and you've got a lot of other stories uh like, like this and different absolutely and we're going to launch a new report in the last week of july as well at global witness that really takes a, a deeper look at what the threats and attacks facing indigenous leaders land and environmental activists around the world are so that's a that's a good starting point if you want to get more of a global analysis and a global picture of what's going on out there and how you can help and a report and a report that Lottie mentioned that she's also contributed to is from the Oakland Institute um, so we could also uh, push out a link to that as well because I think she was very pleased that that report told her story as well where can we where can we go for your reports? on the 29th of July. www.globalwitness.org And what's your social media handle if people want to follow you and keep up to date? I'm BenLever1 on Twitter. The first of the Ben Levers? Well, apparently not, because otherwise I would have gone for Ben Lever. Oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> he's, the, he's, he's, he's the second Sorry, of 9,000. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. <laughs> that's that's Tom's first fail on So Hot right now, which I'm delighted about because I the do first. them all the time. <laughs> uh, thank you, Ben. No, um, pleasure. Pleasure. 
Uh, well, I'd just like to say thank you to our producers, Fourth Floor Creative and Picture Zero. I would like to say a special thank you to Natalie Jameson, our brilliant producer, who also spoke today, which I'm sure you enjoyed hearing her voice. And last, but by no means least, the brilliant Chris Ketley for the music. See you next time. Thank you.